Welcome to the New Diplomatist Podcast, and as always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today I'm joined with a guest from uh, Europe, a very special guest, uh, Massimiliano Gabato. Uh, Massimiliano, thank you so much for joining the New Diplomatist Podcast, and would you care to give just a brief introduction of yourself to the listeners on your area of expertise and also on Pub Affairs Brussels, where you work? Okay, thank you very much for having me, first of all. Uh, I am the communication director of Pub Affairs Brussels, which is a think tank and a platform for debates on uh, European affairs. Uh, we are based in Brussels, and we regularly organize debate with policymakers and um, the private industry, the NGOs, and all stakeholders involved in the European EU policymaking. I have a background in political sciences, and I worked previously for a European Voice, which was owned by The Economist, uh, as well as for several NGOs um, active in the fields of the neighborhood policy and uh, especially in the Balkans. That's my background indeed. Well, it's a very uh, very knowledgeable background, and I'm very glad to have you on the podcast. It's an honor for you to share your time today for the listeners. And uh, we brought you on to discuss, obviously, uh, Europe and, and various matters related to Europe, starting with uh, a topic that is, I would say, it's fair to say a fairly perennial one uh, inside of Europe, which is inside the EU structure. Uh, everyone is an equal, an equal member, has an equal voice, uh, but there is a recognition that certain countries do lead uh, by the nature of their uh, economic size, their political influence. And obviously, Germany is probably uh, number one in that regard. Uh, given its trading status. So there's been a lot of discussion uh, in the last few months in particular about uh, since the pandemic really began in earnest, uh, the future of German leadership and specifically German political leadership as Angela Merkel comes to the end of her terms, as well as the fact that Germany now has um, uh, the, uh, I should say, an outsized influence inside the EU, what with uh, Ursula von der Leyen. Um, what, what is sort of the status currently of German leadership in the pandemic, as well as into the future as Merkel retires and as her successor comes comes onto the stage? Yes, well, this is a, well, it's a quite complex question. Uh, I would take out of the equation, if I, if I may, uh, the question of Ursula von der Leyen. Actually, being the president of the commission and being German, it's a disadvantage for her. And it's probably not really an advantage for Germany, in my opinion, in the sense that he has to be very careful not being too German, let's say. So I, I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather point this out because this is, this is quite important. I mean, However, oh no, that's very important. However, I would say that Germany, uh, well, the, 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 we can say that Europe has had a German question since the very beginning of the creation of the European Union. Some of the theories which uh, have come up throughout historians or, or political scientists is that European Union is a way to, it was a way to reconcile, well, it was actually a way to reconcile uh, Europe after the Second World War, and especially to reconcile the core of the conflict after the Second World War between France and Germany. So the, the, the German question uh, is actually one of the, it, it has always been present in, in, in Europe's debates, 
the, the Europe's construction, especially when it came with, with the fall of, of the Berlin Wall and then with the construction of the Euro. Indeed, the Euro has been has been constructed uh, upon the model upon the model of Germany. Well, actually, you're quite pretty right on on on, on saying that Germany has a special role uh, in Europe. It is definitely the most powerful country in terms of um, in terms of economic performances. All countries, all 27 member states, well, sorry, all 28, because Britain is still in. But anyway, uh, anyway, all 27 member states look at Germany to see, uh, to, to look at Germany's position to understand how to position themselves in the, in the, in, in the, in the European debate, in the, in the, in the other debates at the European level. However, Germany has also emerged uh, many times and pundits and, and, and analysts have been discussing about this for years uh, as uh, an, an unwilling leader. So actually Germany has always been, and I, I share this opinion, has uh, always been quite reluctant in emerging as a leader. This is for many reasons, not least for the fact that Germany is a federal state and and its political uh, equilibrium is pretty um, is pretty fragile compared to the one to the image that they project uh, outside. I mean, there are, there's a lot there are a lot of frictions there, there are a lot of friction inside the CDU party, for example. But there are also a lot of friction between the different parts of the different lenders, the different states uh, of Germany. I think this is the point. Um, this is the, the this is the point where where to start to to understand uh, the Merkel Merkel legacy you you were talking about, because we know that um, Angela Merkel uh, will be will have his, her last uh, mandate this mandate this this mandate around, this mandate around, and if we have to analyze how the, the the figure of Angela Merkel has been influenced, Europe is very very heavy. So first of all, we have to remember that. Uh, Angela Merkel was kept chancellor during the 2008-2010 financial, economic and financial crisis, where there was a fierce debate among those who wanted uh, the European Union actually to intervene, not the European Central Bank, but rather the European Union, to stop the crisis in Greece and then the, the widespreading of, of the crisis across Europe. So Germany has been strictly, we actually criticised for the rigidness of the application of the rules of the of, of economic stability that the European Union has set with the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, this is the first, definitely the 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 the, 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 the starting point, a focal point of, of Merkel of Merkel's role in in, in both in Germany and European Union. The second point will, will, will be the so-called migration crisis, so the, the, which is which was not actually a migration crisis. It was just like it was just the acceptance of Germany. Actually, Angela Merkel wanted the Syrian refugees to be, to be hosted uh, in Germany, uh, given the, the, the long-standing humanitarian efforts that Germany uh, has done during the federal Germany has done uh, during time. So now we arrive at, uh, at, this, uh, at this very moment in which we can actually uh, note that there's a shift. So the, the first shift is that the one, it's an economic shift. So Germany has agreed with the rescue plan to uh, finance uh, the recovery after the coronavirus, of the, of the coronavirus crisis with the debt mutualization, which was a taboo 
definitely a taboo before 2020, as Germany, um, as we know, was absolutely in line with the so-called five rules, which were against any kind of plans, uh, especially to southern states, in order to uh, finance the recovery. Uh, the, um, the bloc was composed by Germany itself, uh, Austria, Finland, the Netherlands, and Sweden. So, sorry, and Denmark. Uh, so the so-called frugal five be- became the frugal four. Germany has opted to, for the first time in, in its history, to 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 grant uh, to less uh, to weaker uh, economically weaker states uh, a kind of mutualization of debt or any 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 way to financing the debt towards towards some um, bonds which were issued at a European level and not a national level. Uh, this is really, really very important because uh, the fracture which the 2010 crisis between the north of Northern Europe and Southern Europe has been, the equilibrium after the crisis has been broken by Germany saying, no, this is the time to invest and to also to use that liberalization and, and to start uh, shifting from a, a rigid macroeconomic model to a more flexible macroeconomic model. And, and this with the consequences that were for the Eurozone, which um, for the first time has been uh, backed by a Europe-wide bond. So um, I'd rather say that the, um, the German leadership, now it has, it has come up somehow, meaning that Germany was, in my opinion, forced to take, uh, to take a position and anyway forced to act and to choose between two different uh, ways of thoughts. On the one hand, and on the other hand, we will we also know that at the end of the mandate, mandate for such a political figure like like Angela Merkel is absolutely an essential focal point for the legacy that Merkel will uh, will leave to Germany. Is this is comparable to the legacy of the United States or uh, to the president of the United States of America at the end of his mandate, given all the differences between the United States and Germany. So definitely some some significant things to unpack there, and I think you struck on one of the major points of of Angela Merkel's influence at this particular point in time, being that recent EU budget deal, uh, multi-year budget deal, that included that coronavirus relief package. And I know you already mentioned it briefly, but perhaps unpacking it a, a bit more for some of our listeners may be less familiar, that package deal with coronavirus that was unique because of, of a debt issuance on a continental-wide level and not nation-to-nation. Nation. Could you sort of explain that a little more? Yes, absolutely. Indeed, you're absolutely right about that. Well, if we take, for example, the 2010 crisis, it's, it's very clear because the, the structure of the Eurozone is, is quite weird, uh, meaning that um, we Europe has a common currency, but uh, the debt... Uh, doesn't belong to Europe as a whole, but to single member states. So what happens that is that we have a, a symmetry between macroeconomic policies and the fiscal policies. And most importantly, if a country is in uh, financial difficulty in order to financially itself, like Italy or Spain, and sometimes also also France, the effort won't be bared at a, at a, at a EU level, but will be bared by the single member states. However, both those who have to, to those who have not to adjust economically, they they, they will maintain their their privilege uh, in terms of debt. 
Indeed, the question of debt neutralization was the big question in 2010, and it has not been resolved so far. Meaning, in a very practical way, that means that Italy would pay, uh, let's say, 3% of interest rate for everything uh, the, the country borrows, while Germany, being considered a safe country, can even, uh, even borrow at a negative interest rate. So we have discrepancies between the economy and it's a little bit of a failure of economic integration of the European Union. I don't know if I was sufficiently clear. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I thought that was very clear. And so this new, this new debt structure would relieve some of that tension, would it not, between the, the gap in interest rates between the more prosperous north and perhaps the more debt-laden south? Yeah, absolutely, because uh, definitely investors won't look like just a, a single country, but they will know that the debt issue will be, will be issued at the European level, so they will have to assess the wealth of the European economy rather than the national economy. But make no mistake, this is just a, a single step to, towards a closer integration of, of the European Union. There are still a lot of differences, not least the fiscal differences between member states. And I give you one single example, which is which has been represented during the debate of the, of the recovery plan between Italy and, and the Netherlands, because the Netherlands was, uh, were strongly, fiercely and boldly against any kind of grants to southern European countries, while Italy was advocating for it. However, we, will, we should introduce um, a fiscal scheme, which is a little bit complicated between Ireland and the Netherlands, which basically allowed European companies to be placed to, to put their operational um, headquarters in, 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 in Ireland and uh, other aspects of the company in, uh, in the Netherlands, whereby this mechanism they could pay less taxes. And Fiat Chrysler uh, was one of the, of the companies who has benefited from this. And it's quite uh, symbolic, I would rather say, because the, the southern countries were saying yes, on the, you, you, but you are you are using your fiscal advantage to get even more wealth. So that has been also, um, I mean, a, a quite of a confrontation, I have to say. So, and, and this has been resolved by Germany shifting towards uh, southern European countries. So this is really a this is a shift. I don't know. To, if this shift will be will be kept in the medium or long term, that is to to be seen. But I'd rather say it's quite important to notice it. Well, indeed, and there is a significant shift to that. And speaking of shifts and and tensions and so on, we could deal on this topic for quite some time. But since we are dealing on on a limited time basis, I want to be respectful of your time. If we shift to the next yeah. segment of this of this podcast, uh, when it comes yeah. to a discussion of tensions, not so much within Europe regarding. Uh, economics and, and, and bailouts and so on, but rather between uh, Atlantic partners, between the United States and between yes, Europe as a whole, uh, when it comes to defense. Now, obviously, you know, widely known that Europe is, is primarily guarded and uh, governed in a security structure by the North Atlantic uh, Treaty, the NATO Absolutely. organization. Uh, and that's been the hallmark of U.S. Uh, foreign relations there for going on 80 years now. However, with President Donald Trump's uh, arrival, uh, he's made a bigger issue out of the 2% GDP threshold, which many allies yeah. in Europe have not actually met yet. Um, he's mm -hmm. made an issue of the alliance possibly even being outdated, generally speaking. And you know, for yes. the first three years, it's been fairly just rhetoric uh, and, and sort of politics. But within the last yeah. month, we've seen something 
significant. Nearly 12,000 American troops in Germany are now being withdrawn. Um, now, granted, some of them are being redistributed to other areas. I've heard Romania as one of them. Uh, but some are coming home as well. And so does this signal a change and a shift for Europe, not just in the economics we spoke of, but in defense as well? Is America re- removing itself from this, would you say, from a European perspective? Or where are we at here? Yeah, that's quite complicated because we have to be careful here because Donald Trump is a little bit of a tricky figure in general. I mean, uh, he's very harsh in what he, he says and he states, but we don't have to make it so it can be easily criticized. I'm not defending Donald Trump. I just want to put things into perspective because the request of the 2% uh, of Donald Trump was also a request of Obama, of the Obama administration. Correct. That, so, is, that has been a perennial uh, uh pain point inside the uh, inside the alliance for some years now indeed indeed so i'd rather i'd rather say that this this time around uh let's say the figure of donald trump is entering more like more like a colorful character in the in a discussion which has been around for years and on the on the, on the one hand on the other hand regarding nato i i think it would be much more uh much more uh, interesting to look at the reaction of, of uh, president macron to the comments of um of, of uh, president trump who he was stating that the, the nato is brainly dead Obviously, this is a little bit of a French provocation, if you wish. But we'll, we also have to <laughs> the French have had an interesting history with NATO that we don't have time to go into. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed, they, they joined in the seventies and so on and so forth. The seventies and so on and so forth, absolutely. But I'm just saying that we have to take bear in mind that the only nuclear power apart from Britain is actually France. That France has one of the largest military compared to other countries in Europe. And it's still very, France is still very active in the, the global in the global arena, especially in Africa. So we can see that um, we can see that there's on the one hand the request of the United States, which is not coming not only from Donald Trump but also from from beforehand, to spend more on on defense and to they they want to Europeans to gain more on defense. But on the other hand, we also have uh, Europeans, which are um, slowly coming out with the concept of strategic autonomy. What does strategic autonomy mean? What does it mean? It means that there's a recognition of the importance of the U.S. or the transatlantic relation and the U.S. military power on the one hand, but also probably the necessity to be more independent and to, and to expand military capacity. This has happened, actually. I mean, has started to happen, not in completely, but the, the European the, the European Commission uh, last year has released uh, quite a, a few quite a few documents on how we can uh, how, sorry how European can rationalize uh, the number of troops, the armaments, and so on and so forth, in order to be more effective. And this was mostly in connection to boost the European, the European, uh, the, the European army industry. There's also, yeah, the European industry. So this is more or less a dynamic in which we are, which we are living, which we are, the European Union and the US are living right now in terms of uh, debates, uh, in terms of, of, of debates uh, of defense. Uh, there is also one thing to say that Europe has not a common foreign security policy. Although it exists in paper, it has never been really, really. It has never been applied in any kind of uh, war situation. So, 
we've got a situation in which the, um, especially the US are requesting more engagement but on the other hand some on the other hand the European are also requesting a little bit more of autonomy uh, the Russia for example is very divisive as an argument uh, as a sorry as a subject matter in Europe because the old European states let's say the one the fund the one the, the funding uh, the funding European states and let's say not the, the, the not the Eastern European states compared to the Eastern European states are very keen on having good I mean that the good relationship maybe is is too harsh but trying to have the best cooperation possible with Russia uh, especially in economic terms whereas Eastern European countries, and especially the Baltics, but also Eastern European countries in general, tend to have a confrontational relationship with Russia. And obviously, if you think that um, that we have that Europe has a border with, with Russia, this is not secondary because Europe is divided in itself. So it would, would like to have autonomy on the one hand regarding especially all member states, but on the other hand, Eastern member states will, will, will be even more into the NATO alliance, in, in especially in contraposition to Russia. So um, I would say the issue is very, is very complicated. And the last comment, it will be that it will be on President Trump in this in this uh, this time because it was a little bit of funny to uh, to observe the fact that uh, when the Europeans have started to uh, also to to, cause, to to try to to see that the industry could have could have been more much more integrated in in constructing armament the president Trump said you don't, you you have to you have to consider foreign uh, suppliers meaning obviously the US so on the, the there's a contradictory request on the one hand spend more but on the other hand spend American which is in times of crisis is not really uh, really feasible that's that's what I would say. I found particularly interesting your statement that the um, more central and Western European powers, which until the early 1990s were the border uh, between Europe and the, the former Warsaw Pact, are used to having to deal with Russia in more conciliatory terms and, and economic relations, whereas the eastern half of the, the continent, being more recently freed, if you will, from the Warsaw Pact's grip, uh, do not want to trust Russia and are much more willing to cooperate with NATO and, and the United States. Um, yes, I guess yes. as a, as a follow-up on that point, you know, the French in particular seem keen on this idea, but I would like the European perspective, if you would, on the notion that the British have, have feared for some time and even used as part of their motivation for Brexit, which we could touch on next, um, which is a European army sooner or later, eventually. A European defense force, perhaps, might be a more measured way of explaining it. Is that likely in the next five to ten years, particularly if Trump wins another term in November? Wow. Well, this is oof, that's that's really impossible to uh, to. Well, your <laughs> to best guess, your best that. opinion as a, as an observer. Anyway, I won't it, hold it, you to it, it if it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, obviously, obviously, but there are too many variables. I mean, I think uh, that well, my best guess will be that anyway there will be stricter cooperation between European industries. So there will be probably there will, there will be a degree of autonomy at least in in terms of. Uh, in terms of, of, uh, of industry, in terms of a strategic a strategic engagement, I, I, I will be very skeptical in the sense that Europe uh, can um, exercise a lot of soft power, but I, I would I, it's very difficult to me to think about a Europe which which also applies hard power. Just because there's no uh, understanding or compromise or consensus, which extends 
uh, the European Union should engage in foreign policy. So uh, uh, it's a difficult, it's it's a very difficult reply uh, reply reply to give. I'd rather say that the, 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 there won't be a second Trump mandate. Uh, there will be definitely more frictions, and, and there will be more friction inside Europe, meaning that those who want more autonomy will, will, will push for more autonomy, and those who want less autonomy and more attachment to NATO will, will, will have a, even a bolder stance. Uh, whether it Biden wins, it's difficult also also to, to, I mean, I don't think that this, this, this issue will go away uh, overnight. But there's a possibility to find an understanding regarding Brexit and the, the UK. Well, I mean, the first thing the, the, the UK and Europe have agreed is that the fact that military cooperation will continue to exist as it is and nothing will change. So that's for sure. I mean, in whatever case scenario of Brexit, whether it's hard, soft, uh, whether it will happen in one year or in three years or will never happen. I'm still skeptical about the fact that it happens, but maybe that's just my personal hope. Uh, I have a kind of affection towards the, towards the UK, but that's another story. Uh, anyway, in terms of military term, there will be straight. There, there, there will continue to be a very close, close cooperation, both in terms of uh, foreign, foreign, both in terms of military terms and sharing of intelligence and cybersecurity and so on and so forth. So I think that Brexit is not really the variable here. The variable here is actually how the US, to what extent the US are willing to engage in Europe. And how the U.S. will conceive their role of major power in the in the global stage, and uh, that's really the determining factor, in my opinion. Well, and on that note, probably pivot towards our final topic for discussion, which I don't think we necessarily intended to do. But if you're okay with with exploring it, it might might kind of open just kind of where we wound up at, yeah, um, well, which sure. is uh, China. Uh, which Ooh, obviously, yes, oh. <laughs> yeah, big, big time. Yeah, okay. yeah. We're opening another Pandora box. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> it seems like every box is Pandora's box in Europe. It's uh, it's such an interesting it place is. for geopolitics. You know, There's so many moving yeah, parts. Yeah. You're absolutely. Absolutely correct. Please go ahead. Yeah. What, what about China? Because there's a lot of things to unpack. A lot, lot of things. I would to keep the discussion relatively brief. I, I would probably focus in specifically on on technology and, and investment. Yes. Uh, which is obviously yes. the ongoing question of, of Huawei, of TikTok, yes. of of five G. Uh, can you kind of give a a, a brief you know ten thousand foot overview? Of, uh, of where Europe stands in relation to China, particularly in a week where the United States has taken a very aggressive stance against TikTok yeah, yeah. Um, and, and has for months taken an aggressive stance against Huawei, which now seems to be spilling over to Britain as well. Just kind of where are we at in terms of China, tech, and Europe? Yes. So, well, I mean, we. so first of all, whenever we consider Europe and China and uh, with regard to technology, it will be impossible not to link this argument with the question of trade, uh, because trade, uh, China is the, the exchange between. Uh, so the U.S. is the first um, is is, is uh, the first exporter of. I mean, the first country of export for the European Union, but the trade between China, the combined trade between China and Europe is actually bigger than the, the larger than the one uh, than the one of the U.S. So we can never. Uh, it, it's it's really really difficult to disentangle what is cyber what is what is what is going on with tech and what is going on with trade because obviously the relationship is with the same actor. However, we have to synthesize. Uh, we can synthesize. We can just be briefly synthesize the, the question of Huawei. 
the question of Huawei is is very simple. So Europe has still to decide whether uh, an infrastructure of, of a country, so China, with 5G is actually uh, a, uh, a threat uh, for, for the EU or not. Because there has no, not been a European, a Europe-wide decision. Uh, Germany, for example, has uh, talked about, uh, discussed internally about the possible if they should have adopted the Huawei 5G technology, and they're still uh, postponing the decision. Uh, the UK said yes at the very beginning, and then they said no, but th th there will be an exit, I think, in 2027, if I'm not wrong. So uh, It was a fairly it's, lengthy it's, uh, timeline. You know, I think everybody was expecting so something immediate, and then they announced this long, multi-year well, plan. <laughs> At least that's yes, kind of the American you know, view, anyway. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, but it's also understandable. I mean, it's, it's reasonable that you, you want to ban. So if you want, if a government decides to ban, to ban something, uh, it's, it's pretty clear that, that the, the ban should be immediate and immediately effective. But what we can... Take, we have to take into consideration is that Huawei has been has been present in the UK for a very long time, sure. and the, the project were, were very advanced. So it's also economic hits that the UK don't want to bear, because also Brexit can can also hit very hard UK economy, especially in terms of financial services. Then we have this kind of middle position, for example, for France, in which they, they, can, they, they still think that there could be a kind of dialogue. I mean, the, the situation in Europe is really, is really variegated. You cannot, it, it, you should go um, more, I mean, in this sense, it's better to go and analyze each and every single um, national, national states and their orientation. However, European Parliament recently passed a resolution in which the institution was willing to discuss the question of 5G and especially in relation to, in relation to China. So the, the Chinese question is, is emerging and, and, uh, and re-emerging again and again in the debate. And uh, this goes uh, also has to be linked also to, the, to how Europe conceives um, itself in the world. So Europe would like to be would like a world which is multipolar, in which decisions are not hardly negotiated but consensual. Uh, this is the way of Europeans would like to see the world. Obviously, the world is not like this. Uh, the confrontation between US and China is very hard, especially, but not only. I mean, the, the, also the Russia in the equation, uh, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. So I would rather say that the question of China is still pending. It is still pending, and Europe is 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 having a, a, this kind of cyber diplomacy dialogue uh, with China. But it's not. It is they are obviously influenced from from um, influenced by the question of trade because every uh, I mean a trade and any investment, which sometimes uh, Europe is trying to limit. By the way. So uh, I would rather say that Europe has, has still have to find uh, to, to understand exactly how to position uh, itself towards the, issue, the the question or the issue of China. It's very China and five G and and Huawei in particular. So that's, I, the only the only comment I have is that the situation is fluid and there are a lot of factors, and especially in, in this time frame with the combination of the COVID crisis and the U.S. presidential election, is very, very difficult to, to give any kind of prediction how, how, this, how this could go. Well, and that, that brings me to my final uh, question for the podcast, which would be, uh, 
in light of the oncoming U.S. election. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can have you back on the podcast after the election. Maybe we can reassess some of the uh, some of the circumstances in the wake of who won. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you. Um, but uh, my final question would just be as someone who is an expert in Europe, uh, as you are, um, and on many of these uh, issues, what what's the one thing you feel like that Americans should understand about Europe and European politics that we don't, that, that, that there's a miscommunication or a breakdown there. And if you, if you yourself could be the one to, to plug that gap in understanding and fill it, what, what would you say? Well, I mean, that's very difficult. I mean, well, obviously we should, we should say, we should, we should go in two ways. And there's also uh, to what the, 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 the Europeans should understand about the Americans as well. Uh, but if well, that's a very fair response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any kind of relationship implies implies at least two people, no? Yes. <laughs> anyway, what what the U.S. would I mean, uh, it, it's my personal opinion to be honest. What the U.S. should, should do or should or should do in in my opinion is to well basically well first of all understand that uh, anyway Europeans are looking to America um, as as a model and uh, the cultural and the personal uh, personal meaning the cultural and the political strings are very strong. It was really shocking for Europeans to be to to hear the rhetoric of, of President Trump towards Europe, as we always thought that we, 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 we were the good you know the good pupils of the US in a way, like we in terms of democracy, in terms of implementing uh, and, uh, an economy, a liberal economy and so on and so forth. And, and so, in, in this sense, I would say I, I would say that uh, there's a lot of room for cooperation. That's uh, that's what I would uh, I would suggest, and I would I would like to see as well. Um, on the other hand, I would also say that the Europeans should understand that Americans are not Europeans. Europeans tend to culturally have a kind of. Um, well, let's say stereotype and prejudice to the Americans. They say, you know, the the, the, um, the cousins across the pond. I, I think that the U.S. is such a unique uh, statehood and uh, and a unique society, which I don't think it's comparable to the, the, the differences between the U.S. and the EU are sometimes much 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 larger than than. Um, than, than we think, especially when we're conceiving politics, international relations, and and economic relations. So, but my final reply would be that the, 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 I would like to see much more understanding and and uh, fruitful cooperation. That's my personal opinion, though. I, I don't know if I, I've been sufficiently uh, explanatory. Oh no, I I think so, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why I appreciate you coming on board this podcast because, in a very small sense, I feel like. Uh, having guests from Europe does help accomplish that deeper understanding. And with that note, I, I think it's a very positive note to, to wrap up the podcast on. I can keep it going for a long time, but I want to be respectful of, of your time, obviously, as well, sir. So just thank you so much for being on the New Diplomatist podcast and, and doing the whirlwind tour of topics, uh, all very complicated, but you handled them all very well. And we appreciate learning from your knowledge and your expertise. And hopefully we can have you on again uh, after the election. Absolutely. That, that will be my pleasure. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was very nice to talk to you and nice opportunity to 